We live in a very diverse nation in the United States, and our college campuses can be equally, sometimes even more diverse than the city or neighborhood we grew up in. Diversity may be on campus, but that doesn't mean every voice is heard at the table. Voices from the Margins is a podcast designed to elevate the voices of women and students of color from college campuses around the United States. Together, we hope to raise awareness on unknown issues, invite people to action, and advocate for the unheard. I'm your host, Sean Watkins. And your co-host, Alice Liu. And on this podcast, we want to talk about getting woke and staying there, defining what it means to be woke, and then also how do we continue to remain engaged with issues of injustice. Join us on Voices from the Margins. Let's dive in, shall we? Uh, This idea of getting woke, Alice, how do you define woke? Okay, so I have a really basic definition of woke. (laughs) Um, For me, it really is just about being awake. Um, And so I think that we are kind of pre-programmed with a set of experiences, perspectives. There's a particular community we come from. And at some point, we just kind of realize that the way that we used to see things is not congruent with either how God sees the world or how other people see it. And so I think becoming awake really is um, opening our eyes up to those different perspectives and um, there's this process of sorting out what, where we get our ideas from and what's actually true about what's going on in the world. Um, would, would you define it the same way, Sean? Oh, no, I no. completely agree with you. Okay. Uh, I completely agree with you. I think, uh, I kind of define woke, at least I have on my blog. Uh, it's just a slang term used to describe people who have become aware of the realities of systemic and social injustices, uh, as it relates to ethnicity, class, gender, Uh, sexual orientation, uh, religious affiliation, uh, what does it mean to become aware of those realities? And, excuse me, um, Dr. King, I thought, did just an amazing illustration of this when he talks about uh, a sermon that he preached called Remaining Awake Through an American Revolution. And he preached it March 31st, 1968, uh, four days before he was assassinated. And he uses the illustration of Rip Van Winkle, a story written by Washington Irving back in 1819. And as the story goes, of course, Rip Van Winkle, he is asleep for 20 years. And when he goes up into the mountains to go to sleep, uh, the place in which he's staying has a portrait of King George III. And when Rip Van Winkle comes down some 20 years later, uh, the portrait of King George is gone. And there's a picture of George Washington, the first president of the United States that's up. And so the world around him has changed. Uh, his family have aged. Uh, his friends have moved. And he just realizes the world in which he Uh, has known no longer exists. And what Dr. King illustrates is it's those portraits that have changed, the one from King George to President George Washington, that not only did Rip Van Winkle sleep for 20 20 years, but he slept through a revolution. Hmm. And I think that's what it means to be woke, is to recognize that the world around us is changing, that there are social injustices that are taking place uh, and decisions that are being made and that need to be made that will reshape society as we know it. And to not be aware of those, to not acknowledge those, uh, is to remain asleep. So I completely agree with you on what it means to be woke. Uh, And I think we've got to both remain awake, we've got to stay engaged with those things. And I think we've got to call other people out of their slumber uh, because we need more people to engage in the conversations and more people to uh, take actionable steps and I think advocate uh, for the change that reflects not just, I think, a healthy nation, but ultimately reflects the kingdom of God. That's pretty good. 
Um, <clears throat> that was really good. I was trying to figure out where to transition. So, uh, Alice, tell me. Um, so, when you think about what does it mean to be woke, when did you become aware of systemic realities and kind of social injustices that were happening in our country? We talked about what does it mean to have a voice from the margins, but being aware, you know, of present day uh, injustices that are taking place, racial discrimination, human trafficking. When would you say kind of the light bulb moment kind of came up and you became uh, woke or awakened to these things? Yeah. Um, I mean, I went to a really amazing um, high school. And so to be honest, I've all, I think that I've all, I knew a lot of these things growing up. I knew that um, the way that um, land has been dealt with in the United States um, has been dealt with with a lot of injustice. Um, I knew that um, our country had been through a very traumatic period um, of <laughs> systemic racism, which it um, still is wrestling with today. <laughs> That's why I'm laughing. Sorry. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and at the same time, I think that um, becoming awake was a little bit more complicated than just knowing these facts. Um, and so it was through my, I think my own lens as an Asian American and thinking through the injustices that Asian Americans go through that I really began to understand that when people experience injustice, when there is injustice in the world, like suffering falls in its wake. Um, and so I think by the time I got to college, um, those experiences helped me to be able to begin to understand um, the perspectives of other people um, I think of a specific um, significant experience, but I don't know if I should keep going. Sean, tell me about one of the most um, significant experiences you've had um, in terms of becoming more awake. That led to you becoming more awake. You know, Alice, I think like most people of color um, and people who, you know, uh, I think from any ethnic background that have become aware of social injustices, I don't know if I can point to one specific thing. I feel like it's kind of been uh, either a diamond that you kind of hold up in the light and depending on where you look at it and when it looks completely different or it's kind of like zooming out and every time you think you, oh, okay, I've got a picture on it and then you read something else or you hear something else or another voice is added to the conversation and the scope of the injustice just continues to grow. Um, and so I, I think there have just been kind of some mile markers in my life. Uh, I think I've shared about, uh, you know, having two upper middle class, I think black parents that, uh, we went from when they got a divorce, we went from moving in the suburbs to living in the inner city. And so the worldview on those two um, locales was very different. And so I think that was probably the beginnings of saying something's not quite right in terms of the rules of what I've been taught uh, and how those are played out, I think was uh, was one step. I remember um, working for a real estate company uh, when I was in high school in Houston. It's the uh, number one real estate company in Houston. They gross uh, $1 billion a year. And I got to be the assistant to the general manager, not like on the office, but in real life. And he was driving the company van one day. And I remember uh, he asked me to drive his Mercedes behind him. And we were on the freeway in Houston. And I got pulled over by a police officer who swore up and down that I had stole the car. He uh, ran the uh, driver's license, I mean, the license plate. And before he came up to me, and once, of course, he saw an older white gentleman as the owner or recognized the name as an older white gentleman, I have no idea. He knew it wasn't a young black teenager, but his gun was drawn, and he came up very quickly and asked me to get out of the car and was in the process of arresting me. Wow. Uh, if the owner of the car, who luckily was in front of me in the company van, didn't also pull over as well and try to stop the situation. And so I think um, 
Those are some instances. My first day on campus at the University of Texas, uh, my roommates and I, we'd stayed up all night and we decided that we were going to go to the front of the dormitory uh, so that he could get his bike and uh, move it to the back towards our dorm. Then we we're going to grab breakfast. And I remember uh, he was white and I was black. And I remember there was a UT police officer that was driving past us very slowly at first. He went down the street and as Brian got his bike, the cop made an illegal a donut in the middle of the street and just gunned it back down the street and pulled his car up on the curb and got out with his hand on his gun and his other hand extended with as a stop sign in front of us and I knew the drill I put my hands up immediately and he just said we would had a series of bike thefts uh, on campus uh, can I see your student ID and so I you know with my left non-dominant hand I'm going to reach for my student ID and uh, showed it to them and my roommate saw what was happening. He turned around and motioned for his wallet as well. And the police officer told him, oh, no, that won't be necessary. And got back in his car and drove off. And so I think it kind of been like these snapshots in which I was like, I think I'm being treated differently in a situation or there are some pre-existing assumptions about me uh, without anyone knowing my name or knowing my background or before I opened my voice and communicate anything. There are some assumptions that have been made about me. And I think all of that kind of came to a head my junior year of college when I enrolled in an African-American studies course. Uh, it was just supposed to be an elective where we were supposed to talk about, you know, black people in the class and an easy A. Mm -hmm. And the professor in the class walked us through just a number of examples of what happens in terms of land, in terms of economic status, geographic location, how ghettos have been created in the United States. And the more he began to teach uh, the more I think probably the scales in my eyes began to fall off and thinking about, oh, well, what happens to an ethnic group if they experience marginalization or oppression or if they aren't allowed economic uh, capital for generations? Well, all these questions began to emerge. And I think it's kind of been a journey and graduated, came on staff with university. And then all of a sudden you're sitting across from the Latino community and they've got something to say. Uh, you're sitting across from the broad Asian diaspora uh, staff um, from various backgrounds in the Asian community and they've got a story and I think as you begin to hear those you look up one day and um, our First Nations brothers and sisters they have a story to tell and you realize there's just been a grave injustice that have taken place in the United States and really around the world and that um, as I often say you know I think uh, the blood of Abel is still crying out from the ground right um, there's justice that I think is yet to be done uh, for generations and so um, I couldn't say it's one thing. I think there have been a number of things that have kind of illuminated my eyes uh, to the present day realities of things that are happening right now. Do you felt like? Do you feel like there was some kind of growth that happened, like along the way? Like, were you putting together pieces of a puzzle, or did they kind of fit into this idea? Did they kind of flesh out this idea of what you knew the world wasn't or was supposed to be like? I. I think probably that. I think there's been more like puzzle pieces. Uh, I'm a, I was a history and African-American studies major in college. So I think for me, um, my dad, even though he's a very brilliant attorney, he just doesn't talk a lot. And so for me, that left me with a lot of insecurities kind of growing up. And so I've always had questions about things. I always want to know, um, you know, what happened in the past 10 years from now, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. How do we get to the spot where we are right now? And so I think that's why history is important. It's both a compass and a roadmap. It tells you how we got to where we are in the present day. And if we can avoid some of those mistakes in the past, you know, it lets us know where we can move forward. And so I think um, there's always kind of been a fascination. Like, how did we get to this point? How is it that we have inner city crime and violence the way in which it is? How is it that we have a political system that um, 
puts all of its eggs in the basket of mass incarceration or more, more, or more money towards building prisons than we do towards building schools. Uh, why is it that uh, when we talk about issues that affect the United States nationally, that's something that we invite the entire country to get behind. But if we talk about things like poverty or mass incarceration mm-hmm. uh, that primarily affects African Americans and the uh, Latino community, that's a political issue that we can't get involved with. Uh, and so it's like, why Why is it the things that affect certain ethnic groups are political, but then everything else is like something national that we've got to have right. um, a national mandate or a theological mandate behind? And so it's it's been puzzle pieces for me. And I think the more I learn, the more the puzzle starts to take shape, but at the same time too, you know, you think it's a 50-piece puzzle and it turns out to be a 750-piece puzzle. And then it's a 1,000-piece puzzle and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And so all that to say, I think there are lots of opportunities and places where we can be the people of God to not just change our individual behavior, but also uh, where possible and where necessary to uh, address systemic uh, and structural evils, um, to dismantle those, I think, for the glory of God. So. Do you have a story, Alice? Yeah, I'm thinking about it. Um, <laughs> it's just that there's just this, uh, there's this large period of my life when I think a lot of changes happen for me. Mm. Um, I mean, I remember in high school sitting around with a number of other Taiwanese-American youth and looking at each other and saying, what exactly does it mean that we're Taiwanese-American? And literally getting nothing, nowhere in two hours. Mm. <laughs> um, mm. I mean, we grew up in the middle of Ohio, which is primarily, um, well, the areas that we were living in, the suburbs we were living in were primarily white. Um, <clears throat> so I think um, it really started uh, with when I went home. Uh, it's my sophomore year of college during spring break. Um, I grew up in the Cleveland area, mm-hmm. and we had, our university had a urban break project um, where you go into the city um, you don't actually you don't necessarily do um, service work the entire time a lot of it is actually learning about the city what's great about the way that Cleveland um, is contributing towards culture and art and business in Ohio Um, who are the people living in it what are their everyday experiences like where are the places that God is praying for the city and so I think that experience really opened my eyes because I was coming home and yet I was living in, walking on streets that I'd never walked on before. Um, I was realizing that though I grew up in a very white suburb, um, there are large parts of like the, like Cleveland, like downtown proper itself that are primarily African-American. And so um, realizing that there's this huge story that had been going on behind the scenes in some ways while I'd grown up um, in the suburbs um, that was nevertheless part of part of like the places that I came from. Um, so I think that there were kind of two awakenings. One was two awakenings that came from that trip. Um, one was realizing um, that I didn't really know where to place myself as an Asian American. Um, because unlike other cities, I think Cleveland, you know, it's Asian Americans haven't been written into it um, hmm. the same way. It, it's not that it's not been a home for a lot of um, Asian uh, immigrant communities, mm-hmm. but um, in terms of the development, the issues of injustice, a lot of those have to deal with um, white and black dynamics. Mm-hmm. And so... I'm thinking about what it means for me to inherit a story that I have not been written in 
in the past. Mm -hmm. um, so to see that reality, literally look at my hometown and see something different. And then the second thing would probably be um, just becoming more aware that a city could be something that you could love, something that thrives around you. I suppose, you know, people have this kind of awakening when they go to like their first economics class or <laughs> their first city planning class. But I didn't realize that, you know, a city was something with a soul, a um, mm. place where, you know, God could work and bless people. And I think that's profoundly changed the way that I've thought about what it means to be part of my community in the last decade and a half <laughs> since mm. that time. Um, and I think that in many ways, um, being awake means continuing to understand what it means to be a stranger in America's story um, and to find out what it means for me as a Chinese Taiwanese American um, to bring my perspective and white people's perspective into America. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, I switched my major after that. It was a very, very transformative moment. Hmm. Um, what would you, would you switch your major to? Uh, sociology. Mm, nice. Yep. <laughs> I was fascinated. That's I was right. so All fascinated. I wanted yeah. to learn about it. And then I yeah. I think there was also this kind of new, renewed understanding, not even renewed. My first time, it was my first time really understanding that God loved um, to, that God loved the poor, um, all kinds of poor, but specifically he has a preference for the economic poor in some ways in terms of hearing their story and walking with them um, and just wanting to know a little bit more about why. Those were, yeah. that was what happened. Yeah. Can you share a little bit more about kind of what's that like um, in your journey <laughs> in terms of, you said, being Asian American or, or Chinese Taiwanese and recognizing that um, probably your history or your voice in the story is not heard, it's not told. Uh, can you share more about that? I mean, I've got some thoughts, but I definitely would love to be able to hear your perspective on what's it like to be able to, you know, step into the conversations on race and ethnicity and the feeling that one has when both, I think what you've seen, how it's typically reserved for black and white uh, and that they really don't carve out space for other groups. And then also to kind of, you know, as you think about the journey of like having to look for resources that tell um, the history and perspective of your people, just what's that like kind of navigating that terrain? Those are a lot of questions. Uh, they're really good ones, though. I think that there are a number of things going on for me um, as a Chinese Chinese American. Um, I think that there is a language barrier that often separates me, at least here in the Midwest, separates me from um, people in, who are older than me who might have experienced um, injustice and even developed tremendous reserves and wisdom around that um, back in Taiwan uh, or China that it's difficult for me to access because my Chinese is actually not that great. Um, and because I think my experiences in some ways seem very foreign to them um, as someone who has had to grow up around people who don't look the same the way that I do. I think in race conversations, being an Asian American can be very, very confusing. Um, one, feeling like you're walking to conversations that you're not emotionally invested in. Um, and I feel like I've been in a lot of race conversations where, you know, the white and the white group and the black group are talking passionately and the Asian Americans are just sitting there wondering, what can we say? Are, I mean, a lot of white people see us as, you know, 
like white people because um, they there are these stereotypes about how Asian Americans have done really, really well. Um, and at the same time, I think there's a sense of understanding that we're also people of color, like black people, and we're also um, being slotted into uh, a system um, in America that is that is, I think, disadvantages black people and that we've kind of just climbed in to the van. Um, and that's huge. Yeah. Um, as I say to you, I think that's interesting, even as we were, I know we've got to talk about like how we stay engaged in the midst of these things. But I think one of the parts in terms of a mile marker for getting woke for me was even how we approach the conversation on our race and ethnicity and both in the classes that uh, I've taken, but I think it was also uh, Nikki Toyamazito. She spoke at the CCDA conference uh, last September in Los Angeles. And one of the things that she talked about was the reality that when we have conversations on race and ethnicity, uh, it primarily is a black-white conversation. Uh, and part of that is because of the history of racism in the United States. When you meet people from any country on the continent of Africa, uh, they are either Ugandan or they're Nigerian or they're Ghanaian or they're Ethiopian or they're Kenyan, and when they step into the United States, they're black. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's how we talk about race. Race was created in the United States as a form to maintain chattel slavery, the, uh, the slavery of Africans. And so if you look at the history of the country, even how we talk about those things, the fact that we've labeled colors as black and white for those things, and we're trying to figure out what to do with brown. We don't know if that's reserved for the Mexican community or for the South Asian community. Mm -hmm. uh, it is entirely offensive to use other colors for other ethnic groups. And so the conversation kind of shuts down very quickly. Um, but I think because we use a colored lens to be able to talk about those things, and of course, like we don't carve out space, I think for the Asian American community, for the Latino community to be able to step into those things. And there's still uh, both some confession and some repentance that needs to take place uh, in black-white conversation. So, and I think we've talked about this as well too, there needs to be a broadening of the conversation, right? That it's not just about uh, racial reconciliation, it's the recovery of ethnicity. And then it's ethnic reconciliation. How do we celebrate the fact that some Chinese people um, speak Mandarin or Cantonese, that we've got some Taiwanese brothers and sisters, that we've got some Filipino, we've got some South Asian who are Malayali or non-Malayali, that Africa is not a country, it is a continent made up of other countries. And so the languages are different, the food is different, the cultures and the customs, they can be different. And how do we affirm all of those things as opposed to lumping folks together into one big umbrella? So yeah, I think even your, I think the tension that you experience in terms of trying to navigate that uh, that makes sense from what I've heard. And I think it, it it lends itself to the reality that we've got to broaden our perception of injustice and broaden our awareness of what does it mean to be woke. Um, Can I say something forward? Mm -hmm. So as an Asian American stepping into race conversations in the United States, where race conversations have been happening for a very, very long time, mm -hmm. um, I think that it's important for me... And I guess for my community to really acknowledge how much work black Americans have done um, in civil, in promoting civil rights in this country and how much we've just kind of come in on the tail end of a lot of really, really hard work. Mm. Um, I think that there is, I think for me coming in, there's an understanding of that, that I'm kind of tag teaming in. Mm. Um, and 
at the same time, there is some frustration that I think I have to wrestle with sometimes in these conversations. Um, feeling like, as an Asian American, I'm having to wait my turn. Hmm. Um, and so I feel this tension between um, that sense of frustration about how to have a conversation and how to um, how to bring attention around some of the issues that are very specific to my community. Um, and so attention between that and what you actually said the last time we did a recording, and I don't think it's gonna be up there, um, but the, the reality that there is a very unhealed wound hmm. um, between the black and the white community in the United States. Do you remember saying that? Uh, yep. I remember okay. Saying that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Say it almost every day. Yeah. yeah. No, I'm kidding. Yeah. Um, yeah so. No, I thought it was really good. I mean, I've been thinking about it since our last recording. Um, and that's not me. I think that's you know, yeah. that's, again, my elders. I think I again we talk about like broadening the conversation, and uh, I think you look at uh, just some when you listen to the the stories of other people, um, and you listen to some. Uh, First Nations brothers and sisters who I think are exhibiting an eternal and godly patience. I mean, you talk about the indigenous peoples of this land uh, and First Nation peoples and the ways in which, um, yeah, their their communities have dwindled significantly because of colonization and imperialism. I mean, just just a mass murder that happened uh, that really led for the foundation of the country and for that to never be acknowledged or to rarely be acknowledged. Um, and then you look at chattel slavery. And I think what we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, God has a very long memory. And when the people get ready to repent, you know, whether it's Zacchaeus who says, see, look, I've given back uh, four times or I'll give back four times to whatever um, to any person that I've wronged or offended. Or you look in Nehemiah when the city of the people of Jerusalem once the walls are rebuilt and they go back and confess their sins they confess the sins of generations before them uh, and the ways in which they dishonor the Lord and they make commitments saying you know oh for the last 500 years or several centuries whatever the time delineation is we have disobeyed you but moving forward this is what repentance will look like and that really hasn't happened I think for the American history it's like slavery happened it's over and we're moving forward everyone and uh <laughs> I think the nation has decided clearly that's the direction that it's going in. I can't speak to that, but as the people of God and recognizing that the church benefited from the ways in which racism uh, played its part, that the economic foundation for uh, Christianity in the United States has its roots uh, in the extermination of First Nations people and chattel slavery, uh, that's something that the church has to take into account. And until that takes place, and, you know, the same thing goes for taking land, hmm. I think, from Mexico, kind of all of those things, through war and all of those things. And I know these are all political hot-button topics, and so welcome right. discussions for those things. But I think we've got to, we have to have a coming of terms when we talk about these things. And so far, it's been kind of um, very what I would call a dominant a dominant culture focus, kind of where Winston Churchill, Winston Churchill said, the history books will be kind to me, for I intend to write them. And so we've only had, I think, probably uh, largely a dominant culture interpretation of those things. And part of being woke is recognizing uh, that's not the story my grandmother told. That's right. not the story that happens um, when white people are not in the room. The conversation changes. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what it means to be woke is to be aware of like there are some systemic injustices 
that are still going on present tense and part of what it means to be the people of God. Like you just said, right? What exactly is good news to the margins of our society? Is it to tell them good news or is it to be good news? Um, is it to tell the poor that they are rich in the kingdom? Or is it also like, you know, to give them food and shelter and clothing and all of those things and to dismantle the structures that created their poverty? Um, I think that's what it means to be the people of God. Voices from the Margins is presented by Ministry in Digital Spaces, a ministry of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. For more information on MDS, joining our team, or becoming a ministry partner, log on to digital.intervarsity.org.